This is the Daily Signal podcast for Friday, June 12th. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Rita Dal Judas. Star Parker is the president of the Center for Urban Renewal and Education and a columnist for the Daily Signal. She joins me on the podcast to talk about why she believes America isn't inherently racist. Don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. President Trump says he will boot out Antifa's takeover of areas of Seattle following the unrest and riots following George Floyd's death. On Wednesday, Trump tweeted, Radical left Governor Jay Inslee and the mayor of Seattle are being taunted and played at a level that our great country has never seen before. Take back your city now. If you don't do it, I will. This is not a game. These ugly anarchists must be stopped immediately. Move fast. The mayor of Seattle, Jenny Durkin, tweeted Wednesday night, replying to Trump's tweet, Make us all safe. Go back to your bunker. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. U.S. General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has apologized for accompanying President Trump on his walk from the White House to St. John's Church on June 1st, where the president posed for photos. Trump received a great deal of criticism for dispersing peaceful protests in Lafayette Square close to the White House so he could take photos in front of the historic church, which had been set on fire by rioters earlier that week. In a pre-recorded speech to graduates of the National Defense University on Thursday, General Milley explained why he regrets the actions per Tony Doherty. As many of you saw the result of the photograph of me at Lafayette Square last week, that sparked a national debate about the role of the military in civil society. I should not have been there. My presence in that moment and in that environment created a perception of the military involved in domestic politics. As a commissioned uniformed officer, it was a mistake that I have learned from, and I sincerely hope we all can learn from it. We who wear the cloth of our nation come from the people of our nation. And we must hold dear the principle of an apolitical military that is so deeply rooted in the very essence of our republic. And this is not easy. It takes time and work and effort. But it may be the most important thing each and every one of us does every single day. The Senate Armed Services Committee has voted to rename military entities with Confederate names. Democrat Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts pushed the amendment. Prior to the amendment's passing, Trump tweeted that he would veto any NDAA bill if it included provisions for renaming bases, The Hill reported. Trump tweeted, These monumental and very powerful bases have become part of a great American heritage and a history of winning, victory, and freedom. He added, Therefore, my administration will not even consider the renaming of these magnificent and fabled military installations. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Defense Secretary Mark Esper, and Attorney General William Barr announced economic sanctions against leaders of the International Criminal Court on Thursday. The sanctions have been approved by President Trump in response to officials at the International Criminal Court launching an investigation into possible war crimes and crimes against humanity, which include torture and rape, carried out by American troops and CIA agents in Afghanistan. 
but the legitimacy of the International Criminal Court's investigation is being called into question by White House leaders, with Mike Pompeo referring to the ICC as a, quote, kangaroo court. Esper said in his official remarks at the International Criminal Court press conference Thursday that, quote, the International Criminal Court's efforts to investigate and prosecute Americans are inconsistent with fundamental principles of international law and the practice of international courts. And he added, this administration will not allow American citizens who have served our country to be subjected to illegitimate investigations. Instead, we expect information about alleged misconduct by our people to be turned over to U.S. authorities so that we can take the appropriate action as we have consistently done in the past. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Star Parker on her perspective of racism in America. We need standard bearers in Washington, D.C. I'm so proud to work at the Heritage Foundation, where our mission is to have sensible solutions to every issue that arises in this nation. The coronavirus is no exception. That's why the Heritage Foundation started the National Coronavirus Recovery Commission. The commission's goal is to save lives, but also the livelihood of millions of Americans impacted by this virus. To do this, the commission has released several recommendations to help our nation's leaders navigate us through this crisis and move toward a recovery. Log on to www. .coronaviruscommission.com to track the commission's recommendations and to see what our recovery plan looks like. Again, that's www.coronaviruscommission.com. We are joined today on the Daily Signal podcast by Star Parker. She's the president of the Center for Urban Renewal and Education, and she's also a columnist for the Daily Signal. Star, thank you so much for being on the Daily Signal podcast. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's great to have you on. Really a pleasure. Well, in a recent column you had written about how in 1992, you operated a small publishing business in Los Angeles, which was destroyed as a result of the riots that ensued after four police officers were acquitted of charges of excessive silence in the beating of Rodney King. So can you tell us how that had an impact on your life? Well, it changed my life because it propelled me into speaking out on behalf of culture, on behalf of poverty, on behalf of race relations issues uh, that surround uh, those three buckets. Because up until that point, I was like most Americans, and in particular African Americans that are God fearing. Um, uh, church going uh, that basically stayed silent when it came to issues that hit the front page. But because of my background, I just felt compelled to speak out after the 92 Los Angeles riots, which is the turning point to propel me then to a national spotlight. See, I hadn't believed all the lies that I was hearing at that time during the riots, the lies of the left, I call them, um, when I was younger and coming of age. It's similar to what we're seeing happen in the lives of the youth that are now terrorizing our streets. I believe the lies that America was stacked against me, that it was inherently racist. I believe the lie that, you know, my problems were someone else's fault. I believe the lie that I, I did 
just didn't have any type of future in America. And as a result, I got lost, very lost in all types of activities, similar to what we saw over the last couple of weeks, criminal activity, drug activity, sexual activity. I was in and out of abortion clinic after clinic. Uh, and it wasn't until a Christian conversion that I changed my life. I, ended, I was on welfare when I, when someone finally said, you know, you don't have to think about yourself uh, in terms that others have dictated. You don't have to think about yourself in terms of, even though on race matters and what we're hearing today, that this that America's racist, they, they didn't believe all of that. And they kind of told me that Christ didn't believe all of that. And, um, you know, I had done so many things and now I'm three and a half years in welfare watching my life just spiral into a little dark hole. I'm you know, thankful that I didn't get caught for armed robbery and I did the rest of my life in jail. So I actually listened to them. I went to their church and I heard the gospel. I heard that I'm a unique individual made in Christ and that God loved me and he forgave me and he wasn't mad at me. And he had set a course for me. And as a result of that, I was able to change my life. I got a degree in marketing and international business. I started one and that's when the Los Angeles riots hit. And at that point, I was just a comfortable Christian, but I said, you know what, this is not fair, this narrative that so many are caught up in today when I heard the same story 20 years ago. And as a result of me not listening any longer, look at my life today. So I just started speaking out. And over time, after consulting on federal welfare reform in the 90s, I started the organization that I run here in Washington, D.C. today. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Star. Given what you experienced in 1992, what has your perspective been on the killing of George Floyd, as well as all the protests and riots we have seen since then? Well, I think that everyone is appalled. I mean, this is the first time that um, many of us have experienced watching in live time, in real time, uh, someone's life being taken from them. And I think that that panic and emotion within all of us would propel some to say, I've got to get out the streets. I've got to vent. I've got to go and protest. I've got to just do something. Uh, But, you know, the scripture is clear that a soft answer you know, it, it just, it, it keeps that wrath away. And what we need to do sometimes is just stop, pause, and allow for ourselves to get into that moment and say, what is it that I should be really thinking about for myself? The grief that each and every one of us uniquely experienced in watching that, that killing in real time was our own grief. And like any time you have grief, uh, you have to work it through yourself. Uh, similar to, you know, if someone loses a child, well, the child child that was lost, the parent's grief is very different from the grandparent's grief, which is very different from the sibling's grief. And I think as a nation, we should be um, pretty impressed with ourselves to say that this was not about race. If, if it were about race, we would not have even thought about it, that it would not have impacted us so deeply. This, the, the, what we saw in the streets was more about power uh, because people were in a moment. They felt that they had to have an emotional vent. But we as a nation were in COVID-19. We were supposed to be shut down. So in my personal humble opinion, I felt that where we should have gone was to our face instead of to the streets to then create so much more damage against our fellow man. Well, I wanted to ask, too, how is racism or race relations, given uh, everything you've seen from the time you were growing up to being a young adult to now today, how would you say it's evolved? And what is your perspective on it, uh, maybe when you're a younger person to now? My perspective is that we lost ourselves in the civil rights era after the Civil Rights Act was signed into law. 
uh, we as a people should have done what Dr. King asked us to do in his I Have a Dream speech, and that was to go back into the communities and build. Because once the Civil Rights Act was signed into law, we should have no longer as a nation uh, thought about race uh, as, a, as a special interest, thought about race uh, as a collective. Uh, individually, of course, we're uniquely made, and there's some beauty in all of us, and, and ethnicity uh, has that attributes itself. But when you think about what happened after King, after uh, the riots uh, of the 60s, we politicized race. The next thing you know, our nation was moving into only discovering race. The perception of racism became a business because we started uh, having affirmative action programs and racial preference programs. And you fast forward that to today, there's just very few, there, there are very few discussions that can take place without emphasizing race. So I think it has hurt us uh, as a nation to keep this heavy emphasis on special interests and ethnicity. Well, you recently held a virtual conference that gathered around 200 pastors to encourage the broadest possible intervention on behalf of national peace and reconciliation. I wanted to ask, what were your takeaways from that event? The humility of the pastors on the phone to say, we know that something is inherently wrong in our culture today, that this is not just race, what we're being told by the mainstream media and or the the activists in the activist organizations. This is a spiritual problem that's rooted in a moral dilemma, and we need to be mindful of that. And so much prayer went forth, but also decisions to take action. And so as the Center for Urban Renewal and Education, Urban Cure, we are developing out a three-pronged program right now with those pastors, projects that we believe will be able to help turn the tide away from what we're hearing now, especially from the left, that they're going to go overboard um, with um, this moment in time. You know, they don't let a crisis go to waste, and yet this is a crisis. Uh, This was appalling uh, to watch lifetime uh, uh, killing, but we also know as a people that we are unique, and we need to keep our minds set on that. We do not need some of what they are saying in the Congress now that they're going to focus a lot more attention on ethnicity and race. I mean, it's embarrassing uh, what the governor of Kentucky said that now he's just going to kind of what line up all the blacks and give them free health care? Or is this a special line we all have to get in? I mean, let's not go that path. I think that the insistence that this is systemic racism should be questioned. We're talking about institutions that have a perception of racism business that has been governing for the last 50 years. But I think that what we should learn from this moment in time is to get rid of those programs, not increase their dimensions and their size. We'll start in your email announcing this teleconference that you had with the pastors. Uh, You had said, I don't agree that our nation is racist. That mantra is the poison that entrenches resentment and division among us. The daily hunt for racism from top to bottom of our nation's institutions have institutionalized the perception of racism in the post-civil rights era. And I know you've hit on this briefly a little bit, but can you dive into this perspective a little bit more on your thoughts here and how to move forward? Yeah, let's think about what we're being asked to do now as a society because of this incident that we all will agree uh, should not have happened. Uh, We don't know all of the details. We will find out all of the details and justice will be served. This is not the 1950s uh, where you wonder if justice is going to be served. Justice will be served uh, in this particular instance because the apparatus of the state that, 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 that this incident occurred in, but as well as the American people are a different people now. Um, so let's think about where we're being taken now in this time. Uh, we're having now the educational apparatus, our institution of education say, let's do books. Let's have 
each white person go out and just try to find a black friend. But, you know, this is offensive that we are going to, now let's think of ways that we can approach that black person about their life. <laughs> I really prefer that my grandchildren are thought of as unique individuals and not someone seeking them out to, because of their race to ask them questions that might be uh, embarrassing, that might have nothing to do with a separated and different culture. The law is clear. Our constitution is clear. Uh, and we as a people need to get to the place to where we know we're not colorblind, but where we're equal. Uh, and that, I think, has already occurred. When the Civil Rights Act was signed into law, I think that it offered us an opportunity as American people to be one, a pluribus unum. But what we know now is there are people who have vested interest in overturning America. They don't believe that America is inherently good. They don't believe what the Tocqueville said about America. They think America is inherently evil. And this founding country that had slaves has to pay forever. And so in that, uh, they're going to insist to rewrite America. Uh, we're hearing in the rhetoric that we should no longer have uh, police forces. Leave us alone. I, I don't know what else to say, but just, just listen, leave us alone. Leave, leave, leave race out of every question. Let's just move on as individual unique people and let friendships bond and let work relationships. You know, it's fascinating in work relationships. Uh, people, little two-year-olds, they work with anyone of any ethnicity if they're working on, on trying to get a truck to run up a, 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 a hill or they're playing in a playground. You know, if you're going to have racial insensitivities, they're, they're learned. And there's nothing that a society can do uh, to a parent that passes on uh, those types of, of, of scourges. You can't legislate morality. We can govern behavior through law, but you can't legislate morality. We're not going to purge our country of every racist cop. It's just not human nature to be able to say, I can be good all of the time and I can assure that no one will ever be a racist. So I think that the goal for America should be to undo all of the perception of racism business, including all the affirmative action and uh, racial preference programs. And then I think that we should just move on individually. Well, you also recently met with Vice President Mike Pence and other African-American leaders to discuss how the country can move forward following George Floyd's death. So is there anything from that meeting that you can share about insights that were discussed that you're excited about? Well, I think that um, Vice President Pence made it clear that the White House is alerted to uh, ensure that not only justice is served uh, for uh, for the family uh, of, of, of Mr. Floyd, uh, but also that justice is served for those that had their property violated and even loss of life during the uh, domestic terrorism that occurred uh, over the last week. Number one. Number two, uh, the vice president assured us that. Uh, we're going to look now at some of the questions that stem from uh, the disparities in our uh, in our society uh, when it comes to our poor, because the 
this White House has already uh, been moving toward equalizing the playing field, if you will, by focusing attention on the economy, um, making sure that we reduce regulation and taxes so that the weakest link, the weakest communities will have flourishing. Uh, and there was some special attention placed there as well, um, because in the tax bill, a couple of senators put in a unique opportunity zone initiative that allowed for capital to flow into these hard-hit zip codes so that business will come in and then jobs will be created and those communities will be turned around. And interestingly, it worked. It worked very, very successfully. Black unemployment rates were lower than ever uh, in our history. Family life was starting to develop because when people have, have money in their pocket, they can make decisions for their future. So we were already seeing uh, great help coming from uh, the leadership of the Trump administration. Unfortunately for COVID, it, um, it, it was an interruption. And now, you know, with um, the, the riots, uh, it's made it a little bit more difficult, and it will be a little bit more difficult for those communities to bounce back. But I'm, I'm confident that they will bounce back. And once someone has had a job, they will get another one. Star, would you have any advice for white Americans who are concerned about Mr. Floyd's death and are wondering if there's anything they can do to improve race relationships in America or something that they can do practically to help their communities? Well, I think to improve race relations in America, one thing that whites might want to consider is uh, helping those that are not getting the education that they need in our most distressed zip codes. And the way they can help is by fighting for money to follow children to the schools parents want. We need parental choice. We need educational options. African-American poor families are begging to get out of these government-funded union-controlled schools. They're not serving their the needs of their children. So that's one place that a society can help. But when you talk about uh, what can white people do to blacks, the last thing we need to do is start looking only at ethnicity and saying, because you're black, I'm going to come over to you and I'm going to make a try to make a relationship. Most Americans are cordial to their neighbors. They work across aisles racially and ethnically on projects at work and other places. So we need to not buy into the narrative that we're hearing from on high now and even on the Congress and every kind of public place that America is systemically racist. This is not true. So what we have to do is not have whites do that. If they want to help the Floyd family, help them. You know, we saw that the family is in need. They weren't expecting a death. And often when you're not expecting a death of a loved one, you might have to pass the hat. So if someone really feels in their selves that they need to do something, then do something. But this is not corporate action. The grief is your own. The grief is our own. This is not something that we do collectively because what we're doing collectively doesn't work. We see that in government programs. This doesn't work when we have think that we can do a one-size-fits-all to build race relationships. No, if you have friends of other ethnicities, then build a friendship. But let's not make it a science. Friendships and relationships are art, and I think that we should embrace that. Well, Star, what a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much for joining the Daily Signal podcast. We appreciate having you. Well, I appreciate being with you. Thank you. And that will do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. We appreciate your patience as we record remotely during these weeks. Please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. And please leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts and give us your feedback. 
stay healthy, and we'll be back with you all on Monday. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Thalia Rampersad, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.